Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty podcast here on the Raised with Jesus podcast series. My name is Jeremy Lightman, and uh, I'm here with my co-host, Michael Zarling. And our guest today is Professor Samuel Degner. He is a teacher at uh, Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary in Mequon. And uh, we want to welcome you today, Pro- uh, Professor Degner. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. So, Sam, uh, before you came to the seminary, where were you elsewhere in the ministry? I was assigned in 2005 to Bethel Lutheran Church in Menasha, Wisconsin, the Fox Valley. Served there for 12 years before I came here. Uh, wonderful congregation. I uh, loved the ministry there. Got to do a lot of mission work with the, the local Hispanic community. Uh, still miss, still miss so much of that uh, work that I got to do up there, but it's been, uh, it's been enjoyable telling the guys here at the seminary how much, how much fun the parish ministry can be. Did you have something, uh, affiliated with, uh, Spanish speaking work there, or I feel like I'm making some connection with you and Hispanic outreach. Yeah, we, that was, uh, one of the reasons they had, uh, you know, they requested a graduate who knew Spanish. There, there was a growing Hispanic community that they wanted to reach, and so um, from the from the beginning, kind of uh, focused on that as a as our mission effort. And the Lord blessed it. We ended up with uh, weekly Spanish and English worship services and Bible studies. Uh, a number of number of members who's first language is Spanish and they continue worshiping there. And uh, what do you teach at the seminary? I teach evangelism and New Testament classes. So I, I get to do evangelism classes with all three levels here at the seminary. Juniors are the first year guys, middlers the second year, and then seniors after they come back from their vicar year. Uh, and then uh, New Testament classes too. I get to do um, quite a few of the books of the New Testament uh, on a, sort of overview basis, and then I get to focus on the pastoral epistles. So those are the letters to uh, pastors, Timothy and Titus, from the Apostle Paul. So are you kind of like, um, well, I think for Michael's generation, it would have been Professor Valeski, and then for my batch of pastors through the seminary, it would have been Professor Lyrer. Yep. Is that kind of your... Your role exactly. That's the that's the order of uh, succession there. Do you do you have uh, so do you have seminarians come to your door and try to evangelize you? I have them meet me in a room at school. I uh, you know for the sake of my wife and my family, I said I'll I'll just meet them over at school instead of having them come over to the house. My wife works from home from a home office, so it works better this way. That's funny, Jeremy. That was exactly the question I was going to ask Sam, too, because I still remember going to Professor Valeski's house and doing that. Yeah. But, but Sam, you know, I think it'd be scarier if you brought him down to your office looking at. <laughs> yeah, that's like... true. I don't. Right. I meet him in a in a larger room where there's, you know, a second exit and uh, some natural light coming in the window. Yeah. For our listeners, we were just talking about that before we started recording. It's just brick walls behind behind <laughs> professor degner stuck down in the basement blocks yeah so 
so what what do you ever it, make up do you ever make up characters that you uh pretend to be with uh different careers I, and things like that yeah i do but i i think i'm probably more restrained than uh than what i remember my predecessor being i, I uh, usually the character is kind of a composite of, you know, most of the people that I got to witness to when I was serving in the parish. So, um, but I, I, yeah, I have fun with it sometimes. So you're, when you're, you're listening to the same presentation, you know, back to back 40 times, uh, you have to have a little fun. So what do you remember, Jeremy or Sam, of what your predecessors did and professors did? Because mine with Professor Valeski, I remember going to his house and he was a very, super nice professor and everything, but he came across when we came to the door much more gruff, and I think his voice lowered. And but he was a guy that had come to our church for a funeral, and that was his persona. So I, what about for you guys? Honestly, I do not remember. Uh, it, it's a blur. I, I remember being there. I remember the guy I did it with. I remember the, you know, the room. But what he said or what we said, I, I do not remember. I think, do you have them do it more than once? They do it as juniors and then again as, as middlers. Uh, and it's a little different now. The second time around, I have them do a different. Uh, so the, the first year, uh, and you guys know what I'm talking about, God's Great Exchange. Maybe some of the listeners haven't, haven't heard that uh, kind of a systematic approach to, uh, you know, expressing God's law and gospel based on the scriptures. Uh, the second year now, the Midler year, part of a new course here um, called Culture and Communication. And so I have them do it in a little different way, either using a Bible story, so a narrative approach, uh, or um, using passages that would resonate with people who come from different cultural backgrounds. So like um, backgrounds that uh, maybe a shame, honor kind of dynamic, like a lot of people in the maybe the Eastern part of the, the world. Uh, so they, they still do it twice, just a little different. I, I remember my, I think I had the same partner both times. And uh, th we did one time at his house. And I think that was the first time because I remember being a little more nervous about it. And then the second time it was not at his house. It was kind of like you do, except uh, it was the, the Holy Ghost room uh -huh. above, above the archway. And we knocked down the door. And he introduced himself as some kind of really Germanic name, like Harold Schlockermeyer or something like that. And he and he had a pickle business. And okay. we were trying to converse with him. You know, you do the little small talk part and uh, find out about the pickle business. And he said something about how the secret was in the brining. <laughs> so I just I remember that was the first time I had ever heard the word brine. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I know Sam, you've sent some of uh, some of your students to congregations like water of life that came down a little while ago. I know mm -hmm. Nathan, my new associate, he said he went down to Texas as part of uh, that project. So what kind of things do you have your students doing where they're going away from the school? Because that's again, very different from when I was at the seminary. Yeah, I think there, there are probably more opportunities now for guys to do that. Uh, the junior year, they have an evangelism class now. Uh, none of us had that. We had a few sessions where we learned, you know, how to evangelize. But 
it's a it's a class for semester and part of that is just some door-to-door -door canvassing that uh that, that they all do uh they some of them do some special you know outreach work over summers uh, in paid positions there are mission trips that, that happen over our winter in period a couple of weeks at the beginning of january you guys can do um, canvassing with mormons in arizona or they can do uh some exploratory work for a new mission in Texas. There are a few different uh, opportunities for them. Some guys go abroad uh, to Latin America for some immersion. So yeah, I think um, I think, and, and then the, what you referred to as well, the, the seniors. Everybody does a a project. Some of them do a local project, doing some some street work for a, a local church, like they've done with you. So probably more more practical experience that some of them get now than some of us had. You know, you mentioned the door-to-door -door canvassing, and I wonder if you could talk to, I, I've i sort of had a love-hate relationship with that. Mm -hmm. um, it, and I think it, it can probably be done well, but I also think it can be kind of a lot of work for not a lot of uh, efficiency and um what what are your with your experience as a evangelism professor uh, what do you think is the place of door-to-door -door canvassing or what's a way to do it well it's a it's a good question probably a long conversation um I think it's, you know, so much depends on the context, right? So some pastors will say, man, it just doesn't, just not a way to reach people in my community. And, and uh, they're right. And uh, others will, uh, will, will still use it and use it effectively. Um, I know some pastors who do it regularly and they have their members uh, go out regularly, even though it, you know, gleans very few prospects, but it's a way for uh, to emphasize with their own people and people in the community, how important it is to, make an effort to get the gospel out. Um, and, and then, you know, some people who have found other ways to meet, meet folks instead of going door to door. For me, I think it's just important to, uh, some of these guys have done it before, before they get to, to the seminary, they've done a daylight trip from uh, Martin Luther College or done something in their home congregation. But it's important for them to get a taste for it, to, to try it, see it's, it's doable. Uh, it's a little scary every time you go out at first uh, and then you knock on a few doors and you realize most people are, uh, fairly kind, and they'll they'll listen to you, and uh, whether or not you have any tangible results that come from it, I think it just helps guys grow in their their ability, uh, in their confidence, and their ability to to uh, change the subject at the door and find a way to express their faith and realize, oh, they let me do it, they listen, they didn't slam the door in my face. So, good but yeah, actually, to get into the nuts and bolts of it, I think is even another interesting discussion because do you think again the answer is going to be depends on context right but uh is it is it better to have like no contact with the people in the house just be putting you know flyers up that's one way uh it, there you can do the whole survey approach where you just want to collect information and let people know that you're there uh but then you, you kind of did reference at the end actually engaging in a, a cold call theological presentation. Uh, what are the pros and cons with all that? Yeah, 
Some's going to depend on your, uh, well, of course, it all depends on your community. Some places won't let you put flyers on, you know, uh, on doors. Um, I think anytime you have a chance to talk to somebody, it's a, it's a win. And I think one of the things I, I hope guys learn, and we've worked sometimes with Dave Malness. Maybe you've heard of him. He does praise and proclaim ministries, training lay people uh, for evangelism. I think his focus has shifted now more toward um, digital evangelism, but one of the things he did well, uh, and I think still continues to do, is helping lay people to see it's it, we can do this. You know, I, I can I can knock on doors. I can actually. I think the hardest thing for most people is to um, turn the corner to say something about their faith, right? So they can say hi, and they can you know go through a list of questions they wanted to ask, or maybe make some small talk. But then actually expressing their expressing the gospel, um, they've helped people to see it's it's actually not that hard at all. Example is you you say where you're from and uh, what church you're you know I'm walking uh, walking around with this church and right then you can say uh, you know we're the church down the road that teaches that uh, Jesus uh, died to pay for all of our sins or something like that there you go you just express the gospel so um, if people are able to do that then talking uh, expressing the gospel with somebody that they already know is even easier. Right. And I, I used to do a lot of door canvassing. Uh, the uh, summer before I got married, I, I left my wife to be able to plan the wedding and everything without me for two months. And I went and did outreach with a couple of guys that ended up at the seminary with Paul Zell and Tom Cuck mm. and then down in in Georgia uh, also. And then I ended up getting assigned down in Georgia that summer, too. Uh, or I mean the next spring and uh, yeah, hundreds and hundreds of doors that I canvassed and I'd always try and do just like if I was playing basketball or soccer and you always, you don't want to ever end on a miss. So you want to end on a good one. And so I'd always try and end on a positive and not someone slamming the door in my face, but as difficult as door canvassing is I always, cause we, when we were down in Kentucky for a couple of years, we did phone canvassing mm. and I don't think there's anything more soul sucking <laughs> than phone canvassing. Yeah. Uh, I I, I'm glad that's gone. We don't do that. Right. right. Uh, with caller ID and everything. I don't think you could pull that off anymore. No, but it is something that with our, my new associate, Nathan, I told him that when you're on board after your ordination, uh, we're going to be doing, going, knocking on doors. We've got uh, flyers that have the sticky stuff like UPS and so forth. You can put on the door in no one's home. But then as soon as our soccer camp's over, I said, for a year, we're going to go out with flyers with your face on it and saying, come meet our new pastor. And yeah, you know, I said, it's an excuse just to get out to the community. Absolutely. Yeah. That's uh, that first, you know, year that a pastor's out for him to get out there and ask questions you know, tell me about your community. What do you know about our church? Um, kind of a golden opportunity. Yeah, I told him, even though I'm technically the outreach pastor now with him and the inreach pastor, said, we'll go out, you know, every, at least for an hour every day. I mean, not every day, every every week. We'll see if we can't get our members to go out at least once a week for 15, 20 minutes, just to, like you guys were saying, they need to know that this is an important thing. And very rarely have we ever gotten anyone through door canvassing. We did get someone who not only joined our church, but became the church president. 
through door canvassing, but it's making people aware of our church, making people aware of our school. And then I always tell our people, God has always blessed an effort, maybe not that specific effort. So if we're doing this door canvassing, God will probably bless it somewhere else too. Yeah. You never know. So what other kind of, I, I think the seminary is, from what I hear, is doing a fantastic job of training these young men to be outreach pastors because in my role as district mission board chairman, we had talked at our spring board for all missions meeting that there are a lot of guys that were coming, at least in this class that was just assigned last week, to uh, were gifted enough to go and be mission outreach pastors. I, it's, so it's fun to see, you know, they, they come here already with uh, many of them, some good experience doing outreach things at MLC, uh, you know, evangelism day and other things that they have now that really encourage that kind of a spirit. I, I think they do they in their classroom work and then also the practical things they get to do here. They get a pretty good preparation. I think our church body as a whole, I'm happy with the, the focus that we have on, on our mission. Guys are, Guys here are embracing that. So what uh, what would you say we're looking for for a, a young guy? Uh, it can be any age, I guess, to be able to go into a brand new mission start hmm. compared to, you know, maybe someone like like myself in my setting, an older congregation and you know established congregation. What are the what are kind of gifts do you need in each each area of ministry? Yeah, you know, one thing, maybe before I say anything, would just be that uh, I think maybe I would push back a little bit on the, uh, and I and I know you uh, where you're coming from, but the, sort of the dichotomy, right, that uh, um, there, there are mission start churches, and then there are maybe established churches, and uh, obviously there are big differences there, and I'll, I'll answer your question in a second, mm-hmm. but uh, one of the things I do try to emphasize in our evangelist classes here is that guys who are sent to an established church, maybe one where maybe that's gotten into a bit of a rut, maybe one that hasn't been doing a lot of outreach. In a lot of ways, you're, you're doing the same things that, a, you know, your guy sent to start a mission is doing. Uh, you're getting to know your community. You're uh, recruiting a, a group of, you know, believers to help do this work with you. You're maybe setting a new identity or a new course for that for that congregation. So a lot of similarities there. I think uh, guys who are end up, you know, being sent out to maybe start a new mission, uh, they have some of those practical skills, like um, just the ability to organize or, uh, you know, strategize. Um, they, uh, they also, though, have the, the ability to lead, right, to lead people. Um, but uh, people who, who are... Uh, well, like all of our guys infused with the gospel and want to share it. Uh, and and guys who have uh, people skills who are, uh, you know, not afraid to meet people, form relationships that can take different forms. Some guys are, you know, good at meeting everybody in a room. Some guys are, are better at uh, one-on-one getting deep with somebody. But um, th- those are those are the kinds of guys I think that we, we are – you know, end up sending to some of those places uh, where you need uh, starting a church is a different, it's a different thing. I never, I never did that. Uh, Michael, did you ever do that? I did. I was the first pastor, but you know, I, what I heard was 
from the board for all missions is these guys are specifically talented to be able to do a mission start. And I just thought that I was going to a mission start because if I messed up, but I was only messing up with a handful of people. Uh, yeah. Um, no, it's it, uh, there's certain, certainly certain gifts that, that, you know, stand out and uh, for, for, for any position, right. You send somebody to be a tutor, you send someone to be a, an associate. Not everybody can be an associate. It takes certain gifts to, to, to function well in that situation. Um, but, but like I said, uh, to begin with, I think one of the things I, I try to emphasize is that uh, I'm hoping all of our pastors see themselves as mission pastors. And in a lot of ways, they're all, I think everybody gets sent somewhere. They're going to have to start something new, or they're going, going to have to reevaluate something uh, in some way. So those skills hopefully are, are ones that all of our guys have, uh, they have. Sure. Any other questions, Jeremy? Uh, no, just more of a comment that it kind of sounds like what you're describing is uh, what at the last congregation I was in was in the Nebraska district. And every January, Nebraska district has missionaries conference. And the tagline from the, you know, the committee that planned it to our district president, anytime we would talk about missionaries conference. Uh, we would also say, and every pastor in the Nebraska district is a missionary. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And that was something I was talking to our district president about the other day with a presentation at a district convention in two weeks is I know we'll get asked in our uh, district mission board report is well, where are we going to come up with, uh, all the new pastors uh, when we have all these vacancies, if we're going to keep doing new mission starts. And thankfully the district president is going to answer that one so that I yeah. or anyone from our mission board won't have to. But the big thing is understanding is, is not just a, a push on an emphasis from the board for omissions. This is something our church body has decided in convention. So everyone is working towards this, just like a, a church does. So it's the seminary, the board for omissions, uh, congregational services, the circuit pastors, district presidents, MLC, we're all in this together. That's right. All right. Well, since we've been talking about outreach and we didn't plan this, this was God's providence. Perfect. We're going to be talking about God's great commission in the yep. gospel lesson as we look at the uh, scripture readings for Trinity Sunday. The gospel this Sunday comes from Matthew 28, beginning with verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So before we get into the Great Commission verses that I think most guys would preach on, I want to kind of spend some time on the uh, preceding verses, the context. So Sam, when and where is this event happening? We don't know. Um <laughs> The short answer, uh, in Galilee, on a mountain, uh, you know, people like to speculate exactly where we, we can't say for sure. And sometime between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, right? I think often 
at least in my mind, I pictured Jesus saying these words and then ascending directly into heaven, but we don't, you know, that's not told us. Uh, it could have been any time during those those 40 days, maybe a later part of that that time period. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because I think that's why I wrote the question that way is because yeah. I think I've heard it, maybe I've said it, but uh, Jesus said these words and then he, he ascended into heaven, but that's not really the text, is it? Right, right. It doesn't say. Yeah. But yeah, so our listeners know Galilee's up in the north where Jesus performed most of his ministry away from the south where the Jerusalem enemies to him were of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And, and I was tying this in too with Jesus says to the women as soon as he is resurrected, says, don't be afraid, go tell my brothers they should go to Galilee and there they'll see me. And then whether it's a few days later or you know, uh, several weeks later. Yes. Uh, in fact, he had mentioned this even before his suffering and death, that he would rise and he would meet them in Galilee. So Jeremy, what does this statement mean when Matthew writes, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Uh, I, it always kind of bugs me if a translation puts the word doubt here. Doubt is not a bad word to translate that by. But I sure hope that translation doesn't use the word doubt in John chapter 20 when it's talking about skeptical Thomas, uh, because that's a very different word. Thomas was non-believing. He was, at least for that promise of, of Jesus' words, uh, the preaching of, of his fellow disciples saying that Jesus was risen, uh, that was no faith in that word. Um, this word is more like wavered. Uh, they, they were uncertain. They, they, they didn't have any doubt in their mind about the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. They just were unsure of, is this a, uh, some kind of a, a dream that we're having, or is this a, you know, trick of the devil? Maybe, um, who knows what exactly their, their doubt was, but it just meant they wavered not in their faith, but in what exactly is going on right at this moment. Yeah, I appreciate that. And one of the things I was thinking of too, was maybe tying this in with, in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he has the Magi worshiping the baby Jesus uh, or the toddler Jesus. And now at the end of the gospel, the disciples are gathered together around now the, the resurrected Jesus and worshiping him. So then, Sam, according to Jesus' words, what has been given to him, and what does that mean? All authority. Um, it's it's interesting to think about, right? Jesus is God's son, so for all authority to be given to him, didn't he have that from the start? And uh, well, yes, as as the son of God, uh, he he has always had all authority. But uh, as our human substitute, uh, he he accomplished God's mission in our place, and has been raised to to the right hand of the Father, and all authority has been given to him. So it's, um, I think it's a statement on his, we would call it his exaltation, right? That he has been, you know, lifted up to the highest heights after suffering in the lowest depths for us. Uh, but then also, I, I think of it as some, such a comfort when you consider the words that come next, which we'll get to in a minute, but that great commission, go out and make disciples. The, the one who sends us is the one who has all authority. So that little part of us that says, you know, do I really have the right to tell somebody, uh, you know, 
about what they should believe or do I have a right to be standing on this door and on this doorstep knocking? Um, absolutely. <laughs> Jesus says, I have all authority and I'm sending, sending you out. I find comfort in that. One of the things I was thinking about with this too was it seems like the disciples always had an issue with authority, you know, how they wanted, they wanted some authority, you know, James and John, they wanted authority to sit on Jesus right hand. Uh, even after Jesus resurrection, it talks about in, uh, you know, acts one, just before he ascends, you know, Lord, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now is this the time you're going to bring authority back to Israel? It's, they just don't always seem to get it. And, and I just thought, Oh, Jesus says, you don't have to have authority. No one else is going to have authority. I have authority. But yeah, like you said, Sam, he's going to give them and us that authority. Yeah, I like how you mentioned that, you know, they just, even to the very end, they don't always quite get it. Uh, like Jeremy said, they they worship, but there's still some, some kind of doubt, some kind of wavering about something. Uh, and I find some comfort in that too, to know Jesus, Jesus. So here are the disciples, like the guys, right? And Jesus sends them out with his authority, even though some of them still still were, you know, weak in their understanding uh, or their desire or whatever it might have been. And, and uh, the same is true for us. Uh, we have, I have doubts uh, and uh, I waver, but Jesus says, you get my authority to go out and, and make disciples. So, Jeremy, we often have the tendency in our churches to invite people to come. So then why is the verb go here so important for us to remember as Christians and in our churches? I think a lot of times you hear it's so much uh, emphasis being put on this word go. Um, and I think it's, it's important to remember that it's actually in English, it sounds like a command and it can, it's fair to translate it as a command but it's only a command because make disciples is the main command in, in the original Greek language. So it would kind of be like uh, me saying to a, a group of high schoolers, going, uh, put on some sunblock. You know, I'm telling them the main thing is to put on sunscreen, but go as you go, this is what you are to do. So uh, it's, it's, it's not so much emphasizing that you need to get busy and you need to uh, go elsewhere and be, be different places than where God has put you. Um, I think a lot of times people in, uh, especially our lay people get enamored with far away exotic places and doing mission work for strange and, and other kinds of people. Um, and uh, the fact is that the, the spirit of this sort of is like um wherever you go make disciples so you you for most of us that's not going to be very far uh i don't want to detract from you know world mission work at all by saying this uh but i think for most of us uh you can you can look pretty close to home and you'll find that uh, you can go to those people and uh disciple them one of the things I was thinking, though, when I asked the question is that I think, you know, like Sam was saying before, wherever a pastor goes and whichever the people are, if it's a brand new mission or a congregation that's been around for over a century, 
we we're all evangelists, the pastor and the people, but sometimes we get in the habit of just come, you know, and I know when I was studying this, I was critiquing myself going, I think I've fallen into this of just, just come. And we have events at church. We have worship, Bible study. We'll have some come events like a soccer camp and obviously Christmas and Easter. But what I want to try and do now is to have more go events of, away from the sanctuary, away from the school building and get out into the community, whether it's like we said before, knocking on doors or just being out somewhere in the community. So with that, Sam, what kind of things have you talked about maybe with your guys or have you seen in your experience of maybe go strategies of getting out into the community? Um, Yeah, I think that one of the, one of the questions I have the seniors wrestle with, in one of our classes, kind of an agree or disagree question. Like, do you think that, you know, come, come, uh, having, uh, telling your members to invite people to church, do you feel like that's overrated or underrated? Do you feel like we should do more of that or less of that? And of course it's, uh, well, I hope it's like any good agree or disagree question. You could take either side and run with it. But, um, if, if it, if that becomes sort of the, it, it's a good thing, right? Come and see, uh, the disciples said that it's a good thing to have people invite people to come and come and see you. But if that's sort of the easy way out, um, our people need to be reminded then that um, like going into their lives, uh, this is part of their mission field too. So I think helping people to think about um, their vocations as their mission field is, is helpful. Helping our, our, um, our members to see you, your life as a nurse and your life as a, um, you know, member of your church, like those aren't two different silos in your, you know, in your existence or uh, your life as a neighbor in your neighborhood or your life as a, a coach of a team, little league team. All of these are places in which you are going, right? That, that you know, in a sense, you've been sent out into those parts of this world. And so you still, you're still a witness there too. I think uh, in our day, especially, a lot of people are just less eager to go go check out a church. Mm-hmm. They're not just doing that naturally. They might come if you invite them, and actually the numbers are still pretty strong. If you invite somebody you know well to come to church with you, the chances are they'll say yeah. Uh, but uh, again, those are people you already know, right? So uh, probably more than ever important to help our people to see as they go out, they infiltrate their neighborhoods, their uh, workplaces, their schools, their communities—they're—they're they're on this same same mission, right? So again, I think focusing on the vocation there. Yeah. Uh, training. Yeah, the, yeah. The vocation you said, nurses. I happened to be at the hospital visiting one of our members this morning, and I—I I told the husband I I wore my clerical collar, and I said, "Yep, uh, first three people I saw uh, wish me a good day, Father." And but it's that vocation they can obviously tell my vocation wearing a clerical collar, but for the rest of the people that we're talking to in this podcast is uh, hopefully people can see your voc- see your as a Christian in your vocation, just by getting to know you. And that's the key. I think sometimes in saying it, like you said, come and see is important to come and meet the pastor, but more importantly, meet Christ. But sometimes that we need to be going with Christ and meeting them elsewhere where they are. Because you're right, uh, it's not we are we are not living in a culture where people just naturally want to go and find a church anymore. So with that, then 
It says, Jesus says, go and make disciples. So Sam, how do we make disciples? Hmm. Uh, well, you know, the short answer is we don't. God <laughs> does, right? Um, and I know sometimes that's been a hang up. Uh, we've had like synodical studies of this verse uh, just to kind of help us get over the the way that it's translated there, that make disciples. We, we know the Holy Spirit is the one who makes disciples, um, but he uses us. And so we don't have to shy away from that either. He has chosen to use us as instruments, uh, as ministers who, who bring bring the gospel, which is what makes disciples, bring the gospel to people. Um, so, you know, the rest of the verse helps us uh, remember the ways that we do that, baptizing and teaching. Those are those are ways that we bring the disciple making power of the Holy Spirit to to bear on, on other people. And uh, it's it's cool that it's it, um you know, to make disciples, uh, the result is people who follow Jesus, right? So it's not just a, like a message that we're imparting, you know, some information, but what the result is people who are disciples of Jesus, people who follow him, who are his, his adherents, his, his students, his lifelong um, followers. So, Jeremy, we're getting into the por portion of the gospel lesson of why this was chosen for Trinity Sunday. So why is baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit so powerful? Uh, you, uh, when you do that, you are assigning a, a soul, a person to uh, the family, uh, the, the original family, the divine family. That is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, and you, you're God is using you to God is using the baptizer to lay claim on uh, someone that He wants to save and someone that He wants to make a disciple, and uh, I, I think that's such a important thing to to focus on, and it gets so easily overlooked. Um, uh, your former principal, uh, Paul Patterson, and I went to see the baptism of uh, two former students of WLS. Uh, they're currently, well, one of them's currently at Shoreland, one of them just graduated from Shoreland, but they go to a non-denominational church, and uh, but they invited us to their baptism, and so it was kind of interesting as a Lutheran to sit in their baptism service and just listen to all these <laughs> way off the mark uh, statements about baptism and how baptism is mainly a sign of your obedience and baptism is uh, a way that you commit yourself to, to, to God rather than he putting his name on you uh, and making you part of his family. But they, but they read this passage they, they included this in the order of the service. They said that God uh, commanded us to make disciples by baptizing and teaching, and baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching. And yet there's that disconnect of, but didn't you just hear the part where it said, this baptizing makes you into a disciple? It's not you deciding to become a disciple and then getting baptized as an afterthought. It's baptizing that makes you the disciple right when i talk about when i talk to parents about 
baptism, whether for their infant or their older child. The reason I asked the question like this is the the power in the name of the triune God is I'll always ask them, well, what's the name of your child? All three names. Why'd you name the child those names? Which is the most important of those three names? And hopefully they say the last name. And then I'll say, well, yeah, it's the last name because now you know, your child belongs to you. You know, you went left the hospital with her because she has your last name. But now in baptism, your child will have God's name and meaning she belongs to the triune God. And uh, he'll have, she will have the mark of God on her with a sign of the cross and a head and heart marking her as that child. She belongs to God even more so than she belongs to you now. So Pastor Zarling, yes. uh, have you encountered any bad analogies for the Trinity or uh, what about any artwork or stained glass windows uh, that you want to share with us that helps to illustrate the Trinity? Well, what I was thinking, I still have people that will tell me well, when I talk about bad analogies, they'll say, but pastor, my pastor taught me this and I was a Wells pastor. And I said, well, your pastor was wrong. I'm sorry to say, you know, I don't know what you guys have heard. Uh, I, I think of the one when I was, down in Kentucky, and I taught the Trinity to my catechism student. The next week, she came back and said, Pastor, I've got it figured out. The Trinity is like my dad, and he's a dad and a father and a soldier. And I said, you're exactly wrong. And you know, it's not that way. And I know others have been like an, an apple with the skin and meat and core, ice, water, vapor, the three-leaf clover. That's more than Patrick. That's right. <laughs> no. You guys have you seen that? Uh, oh yeah, I showed it last week in my baptism and Trinity Bible study. Yep. You should probably just edit that into this podcast. It's pretty yeah. good. I don't know. Have you guys heard of other bad analogies? No. <laughs> I think you. I think you hit most of them. Okay. My my. I always share the same meme on the afternoon of Trinity Sunday at the little kid with the fist up and this one says I, I preached on Trinity Sunday without any false doctrine. You know, I, I did it because it's, <laughs> it's both hard and easy. And I guess too, you know, to answer your question, Jeremy of ways to illustrate the Trinity. Uh, one of the things that I'll do in the children's devotion on Sunday is I always try and teach my children and, and adults that when you walk into a church, you should know what that church teaches just based on the artwork and chance of furniture, stained glass windows and so forth. So in our Racine campus, both of our paintings that we have set up for the Pentecost season, there's the disciples at Pentecost and in the arch, there's like a little hidden symbol of three intertwined circles for the Trinity in the other painting of Jesus feeding the 5,000. There's a little boy that brings his lunch there in the lunch basket. There's a seal on the basket that has three fish in a circle. And that's an ancient symbol of the Trinity. And then at our Caledonia campus, the stained glass windows will have an eye in a triangle for the father, a cross for the son, a flame for the Holy spirit. So what would you think if, uh, Somebody preaching about the Trinity, uh, Trinity Sunday or whatever, sa- describes the triune God as 
having a multiple personality order. I would say that would be absolutely false. It's not disorder. It's multiple personality oh, order. Multiple personality <laughs> order. No, because I want to hear the I want to hear the seminary professor. Oh man, okay. Uh, doesn't sound right to me. <laughs> Why not? Multiple personality order. Uh, what what's a personality then, right? Like, is that um, to me that sounds like you you have different sort of ways of acting or something um, rather than three person. Just, yeah. You know, I'm going to stick with what Athanasia said. And I'm not going to say anything else. I'm, I'm not a sum prof, uh, Jeremy, but I would say multiple person order if you want to go that way. Oh, okay. There you go. There you go. Uh, you know, just something you mentioned about uh, preaching on Trinity Sunday, right? And being careful how you word things and, um, I, I think one of the dangers for me was always to, to get too much into, because you are, you're, you're standing in awe at our triune God. Wow. What a cool thing that he revealed himself uh, to us that way. That's who he is. We can't grasp it. And that he told us who he is. Um, but you can get so wrapped up in thinking about like who he is trying to figure that out, that you miss the point, which is what he's done for us. Uh, he, he just, he tells us, the Bible is full of what he did for us. And so uh, something I always tried to emphasize on Trinity Sunday, this is the Bible tells us uh, God tells us he's triune because this is who the God is who saved us. And so I like, for example, the, the stained glass, you know, like you were talking about that. Was it an eye, a cross and a, did you say a flame or something like right. that? Yeah. It reminds us of the way that the father sees us, you know, watches over us, the son died for us, the, the spirit uh, kindles in us faith, what he did for us. So then, Jeremy, why is the doctrine of the Trinity so important that we devote a whole Sunday to this teaching? I've heard the argument made that uh, really this is a focus of every Sunday. Uh, it's a topic that should be that should permeate our our belief and our and our preaching. Um, that so, but it it's good. It's a good custom to have that we devote uh, an entire service to thinking about it. Um, it, it. It's because it's who God is, and uh, that's never a waste of time. And and he's like uh, Pastor Dagner said. Uh, he's he's decided that we need to know about him being a trinity and if if he thinks that we need to know about it then uh, th that's always going to be practical that will always be useful uh, especially if we devote a whole sunday to it and i think of this too uh, several years ago i had written a an adult confirmation class based on the liturgy and they redid it now with the the blue hymnal and one of the questions I had from some pastors was, you know, why are you starting with the invocation? 
and you know, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's, well, that's where the service starts. And so we start with Trinity. And I always, whenever I teach that lesson, I always teach the adults, God doesn't explain the Trinity. He just starts the Bible and saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the spirit was hovering over the waters. And then in John one, it talks about, you know, what God, the father used was the word, which was the son later in Genesis, it says, let us make man in our image and our likeness. God doesn't explain that he's three in one. He just says, here I am, let's go. In our Lutheran liturgy, that's kind of what we do. We begin in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The pastor absolves the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We send everyone home with the blessing of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it, like Jeremy said, it's throughout the entire service. And I think I counted one time, there's at least at least in the red hymn, there were at least 60 hymns that were, uh, that have a benediction to the triune God at the end. Michael, I did the same thing. I had, I, I made the same uh, Bible information class. Oh, did you? I started with the same lesson. Yeah. All right. Uh, so Sam, Jesus wants us not just to baptize, but to teach it. It's not just a magic formula. Uh, so why is Christian education so important to us? Uh, and I think maybe especially, especially to us in the Wisconsin Synod. Yeah, well, you, you kind of just answered the question, right? Jesus wants us to do it. Um, but uh, I'm thankful for that heritage that we have. Uh, that's been a strength of our church body since the beginning. And um, I, I and probably you guys too, probably products of that in some way. Uh, and a lot of our, our listeners as well. Um, it's a lifelong, being a disciple is a lifelong thing, right? I said before, it's not just imparting some information and now you know and you're in the club, you're uh, you're brought into a family, as you guys have mentioned, and you're baptized and uh, you're made a disciple. That's a, that's a lifelong thing. So to continue to grow in that knowledge, uh, whether you're in our, one of our preschools or you know, elementary school or a high school or one of our colleges, uh, or as a as an adult, um, continuing till the day you die, uh, learning more of what Jesus had taught, right? It's a lifelong pursuit. One of the blessings I've had the last few months is talking to parents about baptism for their infants. And they're just coming for the baptism and then saying, but God wants them there to be something after baptism, that there's a teaching. And then by God's grace, all three families that I met with, they said, hey, pastor, uh, what, what can we do to become members of the church, you know, to do this teaching thing? So that's, that's the Holy Spirit working on. We're coming for one reason, for baptism, but then hearing God's word, there's something after baptism. And if they're going to be keeping those baptismal vows for their child, about teaching the child, well, they need to know something about God's word. So that's a pretty, pretty cool thing to be able to be a part of, like we talked about before, making disciples. And the three of us, we just happen to be there. We're the instruments that God's using to do that. So last question I have, Jeremy, is uh, Jesus promises at the end here, uh, I will be with you always. Why is that an important promise as we go out into the world making disciples? Without it, we would not have any confidence that we were actually making disciples because we could just be 
I, I could just be starting a, a cult of, uh, you know, Lightninians. Um, but because Jesus is with me, then uh, I know that, uh, and, and he's only with me through his words. Uh, so as I speak his words, he's there giving power to those words. Um, answering this question just kind of makes me marvel again. And it sort of goes to Sam's point about um, you can you can spend time focusing on the Trinity, but don't forget to talk about what the Trinity has done. And that brings me back again to what we at the seminary we would call it Christology, the study of Christ. And there's so much of that in here from beginning to end uh, that uh, you've got the human nature of Christ when he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's not his divine nature. That's his human nature because the divine nature already has all the authority. And here again, uh, it's this wonderful mystery that um, Jesus says that he will be with you. That means him, his body and soul and, and humanity and divinity. It's not just his, his godhood that will be with you always or his divine nature. It is his human nature that's with you. And, and that can be a very comforting thing. To think uh, not just that I have a kind of a, a spirit being floating around, but I've got a fellow human who is here with me and who's gone through uh, what I'm, if I get the door slammed in my face, Jesus can say that he's had very similar things happen to him. If I get a success story in evangelizing, uh, Jesus can share in, as a true human, he can share in my joy. Fantastic. All right, anything else you guys want to bring up with the gospel lesson? All right, Jeremy, you want to read the epistle lesson? Are we going to keep it brief? Yes. All right, 2 Corinthians 13, starting with verse 11. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So let's just spend time on that last verse because that's the one that uh, that's the reason why this text was chosen as the epistle lesson for the pericope. So if you guys want to just explain what is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, Sam first. Uh, you know, all, all our listeners probably remember the catechism definition of grace, right? God's undeserved love. And so uh, how, why did Jesus come? How did God's love manifest itself? It's in, in Jesus and our uh, perfect savior, the one who did everything we were supposed to do uh, and the one who suffered for everything we did that we weren't supposed to do. Um, so that, uh, that grace is, is ours again through our connection with the triune God. Jeremy, you want to explain grace as well? Uh, I always like saying if undeserved love has sort of turned into a thing that just bounces off teenage ears, I like saying uh, this is the attitude in God that makes him favorable toward you, makes him like you. He, he, has, he, he has no reason to, but he just does. And... Uh, 
and and that's because of his son Jesus Christ who has atoned for us. So the way I I explain it in the sermon for this Sunday, uh, talking about this verse is that now we've in Wisconsin we've gone from the w- cold of winter season to now this week where it's been warm. Uh, it's mosquito season now, and if we swat a mosquito, we got you know it's been sucking for a while. We got some blood, but it's just an insect, and yet. That's what we did to God's son is we, along with the Roman soldiers and Pontius Pilate and the uh, Jewish religious leaders, we killed the son of God. We have blood on our hands and God has every right just to swat us like worse than mosquitoes. And yet he doesn't. We have Jesus blood on us. And yet we also by grace have God's blood on us, the blood of the son of God and Instead of being angry with us, God turned his anger to his son and his son absorbed that anger. And uh, so now we receive grace and now his face shines on us instead of his face being turned toward us in anger. So grace. So then, Sam, what is the love of God, if you want to explain that? That's wrapped up in what we just talked about. That God, God chose to love us. Yeah, he didn't have to. If you want to think of it this way, he shouldn't have, but he did. Uh, in Christ, uh, from the beginning, uh, that was his. It was it's his plan. So, um, the the love of God, the fatherly love uh, that chose us to be His children, which we've been made through baptism, through His Word. Good reminder that that love continues to be with us. Jeremy. Uh, j- just still on love. Yes. Um, I I think a good way to think of it would also be commitment. That God has committed Himself. This is what love is when it's in its highest form between humans. Human, uh, one person commits themselves, even if the other person is unlikable or hasn't done anything to uh, deserve it. Uh, the the Lover is committed to the beloved uh, through thick and thin. And the way I, I illustrate it is think of a soldier, and I named the soldier, but who won the Medal of Honor in 1971. Because when he was over in Vietnam, uh, the enemy had thrown a grenade, a fragmentation grenade, into the mid- middle of all of his buddies. And so the soldier, he took his helmet and he put it on the grenade and then his body on the grenade saving everyone's lives obviously he died but that was love not a smoochy smoochy type of love that we do at valentine's day but the type of love that we remember on memorial day of someone who's willing to die for his friends and yet jesus does more than that he doesn't die for his friends that while we were still sinners christ died for us and then that love that is shown through jesus well, that comes from the Father. Uh, and then the last part is fellowship of the Holy Spirit, Sam. What is that? Uh, I, you know, I think there are two, two things you can think about here. The, it's general in the, in the words. but the, So it's some kind of a fellowship, a communion, a sharing that comes from the Holy Spirit. And first we can think of the, the fellowship that we have with our triune God, which is 
um, what we celebrate on Trinity Sunday for sure. Uh, and that's why, I mean, that's our salvation, that we are connected with him, that we are in his love. We have his grace. Uh, we're part of his family. But we can also think about the fellowship, the sharing, the communion that we have with the rest of our, our um, spiritual family here too. And I think especially considering the background of the letter it was a congregation that was struggling with, with that, uh, living in peace with each other. Paul had encouragements for them toward that end. So a reminder that it's the Holy Spirit who, who brings us together with God and also then with each other. And Jeremy? When you see it lined up with grace and love with the Son and the Father, uh, it kind of makes you think the Holy Spirit uh, concept here must be something similar to grace and love and it really is um, it uh, Sam mentioned having things in common or uh, a com community type of a thing and it makes me think of I, I know at least in the parable of the wise and foolish virgins the lord of the banquet at the end said to the foolish virgins uh, I, do, I do not know you I, I, I'm unfamiliar with you. And uh, that's something in a lot of Jesus parables that uh, was a, a statement of God's condemnation. And I guess I'm only bringing it up to show by contrast, what a gracious and loving thing this fellowship idea is that we do know each other. We do have things in common. Uh, God does include us in his triune family. And then uh, just to reiterate what Sam said, once you're included in God's family, that means you're also included in a wider family of fellow believers. Yeah, and in tying this in with uh, earlier verse uh, where it, he says, aim for perfection, that really means like uh, aim for being restored. And, you know, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of things that were going on in the Corinthian congregation. There are a lot of issues. So it's like, a lot of our congregations have a lot of issues. Uh, ministry would be a lot of fun if we didn't have so many sinners to deal with and a pastor lead all the sinners who's a sinner himself. Uh, there wouldn't be so, a ministry, would there? Yeah, then we wouldn't have any jobs, right? So, uh, and yet, because we have uh, been restored to the Father and the Spirit, well, because we've been restored to the Father, by the Son, through the Spirit, now we have reconciliation. We have koinonia, the Greek word here. We have communion, community with God. And now that expresses itself in communion with one another at the Lord's table, communion and just things in common with each other so that, you know, so our own congregation, we're getting ready for a big festival party of like 200 people for uh, Nathan's ordination and installation, or even just in a smaller thing like our Christian friends, our senior citizens group going and playing mini golf next week, or I'm going to go out with three or four of our uh, incoming freshmen and doing some mountain biking in the morning. Uh, just koinonia, fellowship, hanging out with one another. But the reason we're doing all of those things is because of the connection we have with one another through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Anything else you guys want to bring up with these texts on Trinity Sunday? No? All right. So we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, just so our listeners know, 
Uh, next few weeks, we will not have a Thirsty podcast uh, because I'll be on vacation and Jeremy will be on vacation and so forth. But uh, hopefully we'll be starting a podcast pretty soon with Pastor Peter Hagen and myself uh, that'll drop earlier in the week on uh, resisting the dragon's beast. And then we'll pick it up probably in in July on the Thirsty Podcast. So this is Michael Zarling with Professor Sam Degner and Lighten in Years, that's by Pearl Jam. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. 